You know how we're always in the market for good quality handmade reeds? Well, MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reeds where you can try reeds from various makers and select the one that is best for you. Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code DOUBLEREADDISH, three separate words, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Hey guys, let me tell you something. Jenna Ingle loves the oboe. She's built her business on providing high-quality, handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Jenna Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders and monthly reed subscriptions are also welcome, and she's going to work with you to find the right combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that's right for you. Double Read Dish listeners can use the code DISH, that's all caps, for 10% off your first order at JennetIngle.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Hey girl, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm just enjoying my break. School's out for summer. Well, I know you are because I texted you the other day and you responded four hours later saying, (laughs) oh my God, I just woke up from a nap. (laughs) (laughs) So I know your summer's going good. (laughs) It's true. How about you? How did your year-end transition into summer go? It was so good. At the end of each school year, I, for the past four years, have given out the Beyonce Awards. I think I maybe talked about this in a previous episode, the Beyonce Awards. I don't remember. Anyway, there's no higher praise than uh, the Beyonce Awards. And what I do is that it's like studio superlatives. And I, you know, just pick the thing that really stood out to me as that student's biggest accomplishment. So there was most improved vibrato, best concerto performance, best orchestral performance, most improved read maker, best second oboe playing, just like really nice individual awards. I love that. I'm going to steal that. It's been stolen. (laughs) Do it. (laughs) So um, after juries, my students were like, hey, we're going to go get some dinner to celebrate the end of the school year. Do you want to come? I was like, yeah, of course I want to come. So we all went out to dinner. How sweet is that? It wasn't even my idea. I didn't even force them to do it. (laughs) And at the dinner... They gave me a Beyonce award. Oh my gosh. I almost started crying. My Beyonce award was for most supportive oboe teacher. (laughs) It It was so sweet. I loved it. And they gave me a gift card to my favorite coffee shop. So come on. I like how they were careful to specify oboe teacher. Like, like saying, there are piano teachers who are far more supportive, but oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was so so sweet, and I'm so proud of them. Like, they all really killed it this year, and yeah, just people had some really major accomplishments, and I was pretty much dying of pride <laughs> the whole year. That's such a cool feeling, especially to you know, be able to end on a high note and sprint across the finish line. That's really rewarding feeling. Anyway, how did your year end? It was pretty good. I had kind of a quick finals week. I was done by Tuesday and uh, made sure to have everything ready to turn in and was really on top of my grading because that meant that summer break officially started on Wednesday. So I had, sorry, colleagues, some of them, some, some of them were still working. <laughs> <laughs> bye, bye. <laughs> 
But I was really excited for break beyond the obvious reasons because I had established this plan, this new routine that I was going to hold myself to for the summer. So um, my friend Gabby, a little bit of background, uh, Gabby Buffoni, my clarinet colleague at Southeast, has been having trouble with her sleep routine. And so she's been doing some research about how to get better sleep. And she's downloaded these apps and it's kind of her own personal project to uh, figure out her best sleep routine. And she discovered the work of Dr. Michael Brewis. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, I'm hearing about all of this secondhand. So I did get my degree in this from Internet U. So be forgiving if (laughs) I'm not getting this totally right. But he says that there are four sleep routine types that people fit into. Uh, So I'm going to tell you about each of them and I'll tell you about me, but first I want to see which one you think you fit into. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, I love quizzes. <laughs> I'm very good at quizzes. Give me, give it to me. Well, there's no wrong answer. It's just what category you fit into, you weirdo. <laughs> My favorite kind of quiz. <laughs> <laughs> so the first type is a wolf. Wolves have a hard time waking up early and are their most energetic in the evenings. There are bears. Bears internal clocks track the rise and fall of the sun. They need a full eight hours of sleep a night. Dolphins are light sleepers who are often diagnosed with insomnia. So they're like the troubled sleeper and lions tend to wake up early with lots of energy. And by early evening, they're exhausted. So what do you think you are a wolf, a bear, a dolphin, or a lion? By myself, I'm a dolphin for sure. Mm. Can you guess what type I am? Um, I'm going to go with lion. You're right. I'm a lion. (laughs) (laughs) I'm kind of notoriously a lion. But what's been interesting, as Gabby's been telling me about her reading, is that the author or the researcher, rather, is very... Um, clear to point out that there's no morality in the sleep types. Like we can give praise to certain sleep types or, um, oh, sleeping in is quote unquote lazy. And he's like, absolutely not. You just need to know what category you're in so you can capitalize on when you are in your optimal mode of productivity and you can make sure to give yourself the rest that you need when your body needs it. So I decided I was going to lean into my lion-like nature. Oh my God. What time are you waking up in the morning? I'm still only getting up at five. Only. Which is when I naturally wake up. Of course, every interview we do is really edifying and informative to me, but two of the interviews that we've done have really stuck with me, especially two kind of points that our guests have made. And one was when Nancy Gorris pointed out that a lot of times people may practice a ton, but they don't actually do the nitty gritty work that they really, really need to do. And our last episode, Benjamin Kamen's at some points, you know, just yelling into the microphone, just do the work. How bad do you want it? And so I went, I'm going to combine those really good pieces of advice with my lion-esque nature. And instead of my typical summer routine, which is kind of wait for the other people in the house to get up, maybe get in a workout and, and not be practicing until early afternoon, in which case I find it hard to get in all the time I want because as a lion, I am exhausted by early evening. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Right. So I've been getting up at my normal time, five, and not doing my hair and makeup or showering or anything, which is kind of a point of vanity for me that has kind of held me back from this routine maybe in the past, which I'm, um, you know, pushing through (laughs) and getting up, (laughs) splashing some water on my face, grabbing my horn, getting in the car and driving to work and practicing essentially for two hours starting around 5.30. And at first I was like, this is insane. Like people are going to think I'm completely nutter butters, but it has been working. It's what I need in order to get the time in at the time I'm ready to focus, but it's been really working and I've been getting in some exciting 
type of productivity and focus and deep practice in because I am embracing my lioness nature. So that's been kind of the new routine um, that I hope to sustain at least, you know. And yeah, that's been helpful. So actually, I think it would be fun to um, ask the listeners what sleep type they are. So watch for our social media and we can, you know. So what do I do if I'm a dolphin? I just don't ever stay asleep. Well, actually, Gabby's a dolphin as well. And the advice that she has read is that if you say need seven to eight hours, that dolphins should plan to be in bed for more like 10 because you just need extra time to accumulate the total time. And you just accept that you're a troubled sleeper. Oh, yeah. I, I thought that makes sense. Yeah. That actually, that sounds really good to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's awesome. I'm so glad you found that. I'm really curious to see what our listeners are and do. And I wonder what, what some of them will do with that information. So yeah, that's me. I'm insane. And how has your summer been? (laughs) (laughs) You're not insane, Jackie. You're just very highly motivated. (laughs) I'm just (laughs) lion-y. My summer has been really good, uh, really busy so far. I've had a bunch of gigs, which is great because I love money and I love playing. So <laughs> and uh, I've been rehearsing a lot with my trio at USM. We're the Magnolia Reed Trio with Kim Woolley on bassoon and Jackie McElwain on clarinet. And we are going to perform at IDRS this summer. So we have been rehearsing a lot. And we were in the third movement of the Shikali Diversions. Do you remember when we played that one? Mm-hmm. And the third movement is like rhythmically pretty complex. There's a lot of, you know, Hockett-like disjointed uh, rhythmic motion in a fast section. Mm-hmm. And so I'm bopping along, playing my eighth notes. And (laughs) there's like an eighth note rest every once in a while. And I didn't even know that this was going to happen. But in an eighth note rest, I burped really loud. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I was like, just keep going. Maybe nobody heard. So I kept playing. And then I look over and Kim's shoulders are shaking. She caught me and she stops playing and is screaming, laughing, and I literally <laughs> fell out of my chair and onto the floor. Oh my goodness. She was crying and Jackie was across from me, but she didn't hear it. So she was like, What happened? we lost a good five minutes of rehearsal time on that one so that's basically what I've been doing is rehearsing and burping well as my little brother likes to say better the attic than the basement oh wow Don't you hate feeling bored with all the music on your stand? Well, luckily, you never have to feel that way again. JDW Sheet Music offers a wide variety of chamber music pieces for wind players of all ages. Their catalog includes duets, trios, quintets, and even double reed choir pieces for beginner, intermediate, and advanced players. Each of the pieces on the site will include sample pages, audio excerpts, and short descriptions. JDW Sheet Music has also made it possible to access the music sooner through the new digital download-only feature. Pieces that are marked digital download only will be made available immediately after purchase. To learn more about JDW Sheet Music, please visit www.jdwsheetmusic.com. So we all know that Genda Industries is known for their reed knives, sharpening, and overall amazing quality in the double reed world. But there is so much more going on at Genda Industries. Did you know that you can get oboe and bassoon reeds from Genda Industries at the Artisan Mall? The Genda Industries Artisan Mall, it's like a farmer's market, and it's filled with talented local and regional reed makers selling their own reeds. It's a great way to try out some new reeds from new makers, and who knows, one day maybe your reeds will be for sale. 
Add the code DRDGENDA, that's all capitals, no spaces, at checkout, and get 10% off any gender read knife, maintenance kit, read knife sharpening book, cutting block, and read tool row. Visit them at GendaIndustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just read knives. We are delighted to be welcoming to the podcast Toyin Spellman Diaz, oboist and founding member of the Imani Winds. Welcome, Toyin. Glad to be here. Can we start off by having you introduce yourself to our listeners? How did you start playing the oboe? Where did you go to school? Kind of your oboe bringing up story, if you would. Well, Again, my name is Toyin Spellman, and now I have a hyphen and a Diaz on there, but when I was just Toyin Spellman, I was, I'm from, I am from D.C., Washington, D.C., and um, I was lucky enough to, to, through the National Symphony Orchestra's Youth Fellowship Program, get free oboe lessons from a member of the National Symphony, um, the late great English hornist Dick White, who was a member of that orchestra for a couple decades at least. And then I went to Oberlin Conservatory and studied with also late um, James Caldwell. Mm. And from there, I went to uh, Manhattan School of Music and just studied with the great Joe Robinson. He's very Mm -hmm. much alive and well and kicking butt in North Carolina now. Um, and then I joined the Imani Winds while I was in grad school, or we started Imani Winds when I was in grad school in 1997, just to give you an idea of how old I am. (laughs) (laughs) Did you always love chamber music? Was it always something that you intended to pursue as a career? I always loved chamber music, but honestly, I didn't think it was possible to have a career in chamber music while I was younger. I mean, I started playing in my first wind quintet when I was in, oh, maybe sophomore or junior year of high school. Uh, And I played, when I was at Oberlin, my final year there, I stayed an extra fifth year just to finish learning how to make reads. And uh, I I played that year, I played in six chamber music groups, Um, but still thinking that I was gonna be an orchestral musician for sure. And when I got to Manhattan School and beyond, I was lucky enough to sub with the New York Phil. And I went out to Chicago Symphony Orchestra, uh, Civic Orchestra and got to sub with the symphony a few times. And um, so and I was taking auditions and all that was going great. So I, I thought that was the path I was going to take. But then, dun, 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 <laughs> I had my uh, panic oh no, aha, oh yeah, oh gosh, moment when uh, I was auditioning for the Oregon Symphony. And I was really excited about that orchestra because it had a black conductor, um, Mm -hmm. who another person who's passed on um, now, but it, and also it was Portland. Portland is amazing, amazing Mm -hmm. town. And the orchestra seemed really nice. So I was taking the finals, listen to this. I was in the finals of the Oregon Symphony, and um, I, I kind of felt like I could have won, possibly. I had a really great semifinal round, and I was ready to go. But when I was walking on stage for the final round, I had this kind of panic moment where I was like, oh, my gosh, if I win this job, I'm going to be in an orchestra for the rest of my life. And I thought that was just something that did all of a sudden didn't fit what I wanted to do or fit who I was at that moment. Mm. And I realized I didn't want to lose the control of what I had had as a freelancer and as a chamber musician, uh, you know, that I, that I had built up when, when I was in grad school and what I had started with Imani Wins. Um, in Imani Wins, I get to pit, uh, be a very large part of what repertoire we, I get to play or with the group gets to play. Um, I play with people who look like me um, we play a lot of education stuff and it's very important. That was very important to me too. So, um, I was like, what if, if I win this job, what's going to happen to me? I, I don't, I don't know if I want it. And so I bombed the finals hard and, uh, it, it was really funny. I just had to play a really easy lick. It went like this. Dun, 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 dun. And I kept going. Dun, 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 dun. Like I did it three or four times and finally they're like, okay, let's move on. Um, <laughs> let's do something else now. 
<laughs> and that was it. That was the end of my orchestral aspirations right there. <laughs> Your subconscious took over. <laughs> it did. It just had it to count to four. <laughs> so, you know, before we started the interview, Galit and I were talking that we can't think of any other woodwind quintet that has had the longevity and relevance of Amani Winds over 20 years. But I would love to go back to how you guys started. How did you even meet each other? How did you find this common ground? How did Imani Winds get birthed into our world? Uh, it was all through the inspiration and, and creativity of our flute player, Valerie Coleman. She had the idea of putting the wind quintet together when we were all in grad school. She was at Manus uh, School of Music at that point. And I, I was at Manhattan School, Monica, our bassoonist, uh, to speak double read. She was also at Manhattan School after finishing Juilliard. And, uh, and others of us were around. Our horn player had, was playing, had just started the show Lion King, mm. uh, uh, maybe a couple of weeks before we first got together. And um, our clarinetist was finishing up her degree um, and about to start at Manhattan School. So anyway, we were, we got together and read uh, just like people do sometimes. But the interesting thing about it was that she didn't just go to Manus to look for her. She didn't just go in-house to look for her musicians. Like um, I think people who want to play music normally do. She went out of her school to look for us mm -hmm. and to look for, I think partially because she was looking for musicians of color. That's mm -hmm. why she had to, um, break that norm but uh, she found us all and she already knew the clarinetist but she found the rest of us and uh, we just got together to read music and have a good time or so we thought but Valerie the whole time had the idea of she had the vision of us becoming some major chamber music force like uh, string quartets were uh, or do have at that at that point there were no wind quintets who were doing the kind of work we were um i don't think there have ever been wind quintets um who have gotten as much success as we have and I, that's a humbling uh, thing to say really I, I it's i can't believe we've gotten to where we've gotten from such humble beginnings and and hopefully we have changed the way that people view wind chamber music. And now there are all sorts of uh, chamber music groups out there doing really well. So um, I hope that we've been a part of that change of the tide. Well, I definitely think you have. I mean, I remember the first time I saw you all in concert, I was interning. I was an undergrad and I was in New York for the summer on an internship. And I went to your concert and I had never seen anything like that before. I just was completely stunned the entire time. It was incredible. And um, I think you've probably had that effect on a lot of different people. Well, it's really humbling of you to say Oh my God. It was, um, I still remember that feeling like you all came out on stage and you stood in a line facing the audience and you were playing, I think you were playing Umoja memorized. And it was mm -hmm. the first thing you just walked out on stage and bam, started playing. And you weren't in traditional wind quintet format, like mm -hmm. facing each other. You were facing the audience and I was stunned. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. You should mention that piece Umoja. Umoja was written by Valerie, our flutist, mm -hmm. our former flutist. Uh, founding flutist and she is an incredible composer and we were so lucky to have her and our horn player Jeff who's also an amazing composer kind of tight fitting this music for us they were putting this music together that featured what we were good at and I think that might have been one of the major keys to our success is that we had people who played to our strengths and highlighted our strengths and brought that to music in a way that one couldn't do if one was just playing Nielsen at, uh, exclusively or the Barbara Summer music, both masterpieces and beautiful pieces of work. But when you have people writing for you and we commissioned other people to write for us too, 
then you get to change the sound of it. And that's, I think that's one of the major pieces of our success. Yes. And I'm very interested in that because right now I am preparing for a summer chamber music festival where we are playing three of Valerie's pieces and they are so wonderful, but they are so hard that I feel like throwing my bassoon in the trash and jumping out the window because they are no joke. <laughs> well, again, we, uh, Valerie played to our strengths and one of our big strengths is Monica Ellis, our bassoonist who is just a phenom of a a bassoonist. So she, over the years, Valerie just kind of, and Jeff both, they just came to us with crazy stuff. I I don't know if they even thought we could do it. And Monica just kept nailing it every time. She kept nailing it. So they kept coming with harder and harder (laughs) and harder music (laughs) for for all of us, just all of us. And we kept just practicing it and, and, Whole, more or less getting it and uh so i think that's that's part of the thing nobody can apologize now about being an oboist or a bassoonist anymore and win quintet chamber music right uh, you, yeah it's over now the cat's out of the bag <laughs> <laughs> we have to stop worrying about our reads so much and just get out there and start doing it so yeah that's that's part of it and then also we've commissioned a lot of composers who are not necessarily classical musicians. So they don't know Hindemith, Wind Quintet, and, or if they do, um, they're going to take it to an entirely different place um, than somebody who's strictly classically trained. So mm-hmm. we've commissioned a bunch of jazz composers, a few people from different places around the world, like the great um, Palestinian-American uh, composer Simone Shaheen, um the Paquito de Rivera who's an amazing clarinetist in his own right and he's a jazz musician as well as a classical musician and we worked really hard with um, composers like that to learn their styles and once we kind of got those styles incorporated into our music Valerie and Jeff took up the baton and kept those sounds and the pieces they were writing for us So every piece that we've gotten has morphed into this different sound that that we're bringing to the the chamber music world through the pens of Valerie and Jeff um, by way of other composers. So when you first started out, could you describe uh, Imani's mission to us and was bringing new compositions into the repertoire for wind quintet part of the mission and what else was included in there and maybe even has it changed over time? Well, I think it wasn't coalesced at the beginning. I think we had a kind of mission statement, but a couple of years ago, let's say four or five years ago, we had a strategic planning session where we really um, worked on getting our mission statement really well defined. Um, But I think, the idea of playing for um, everyone, not just the traditional classical chamber music or classical music concert goer, including children, has always been a part of what we do. Um, and also playing in alternative venues. That wasn't really done so much when we first came out, but I think everybody does it now. But when we first came out, it wasn't really done that much. And so we were out there playing within communities as well as playing uh, full-length concerts uh, and recitals in traditional uh, venues. Um, And then also it wasn't just the the music we wanted to change as in the repertoire. We wanted to change the sound of the wind Mm. quintet. And we wanted there to be not just the perfect Beethoven reed that you put on your horn when you're playing uh, wind quintet anymore, because there's so many sounds that the oboe and the bassoon can make Mm -hmm. that uh, are out of the traditional classic repertoire, chamber music repertoire that enhance the sound. Like you were saying about umoja, Um, there are sounds that these instruments can make that are perfectly valid and connect with audiences in a way that is very authentic. So that just changing the sound of the wind quintet was a large part of our, our idea right from the beginning. So 
when I think about Imani Wins as a indigenous bassoonist of color, I think about my first visual representation of another quote unquote other in classical music. And the group has always been really really special to me for that reason. Uh, Monica was the first person of color I ever saw holding a bassoon. I wonder if you could talk to us about the aspect of representation and racial representation that Imani serves. And if you've had similar responses and feedback from other classical musicians from uh, marginalized communities, talk to us about Imani's approach to representation and the type of reception you've got over the course of your time with the group. Well, right from the beginning, that's an amazing question. And I'm, I'm sure Monica would be thrilled to hear that she lets you feel more included on your instrument and that there was somebody who out there who was not um, white, who was non-white person playing their instrument and playing it with some skill. I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure she would be thrilled to know that she, she had some sort of impact on your life. So um, I'll pass that along, by the way. <laughs> but right from the beginning, if Imani wins, uh, we knew that we wanted to change the perception of what people thought classical music in general, not just chamber music, but what classical music should look like. And, and again, who we should play for. So that, I think those two are so related. I feel like sometimes we get caught up in who's on the stage and we don't think about who's off the stage so much and who's behind the stage, honestly, running the concert series um, the, to the stage managers, to everyone. So right from the beginning, we, I think our first few concerts were for some children at the YMCA in Manhattan where we were based. And from then on, we've always tried to play music by musicians of color, including uh, the fabulous Paquito de Rivera, who had already, right about the time we, were, we started, he had written an amazing wind quintet called Idas Tropicalis. And that was uh, one of our first pieces in our repertoire, as well as Barber and, and uh, Nielsen and Hindemith, all the normal wind quintets, because we wanted to always show that people of color um, could play this music with um, a plum and virtuosity and joy. Uh, another thing that is often not attributed to chamber music uh, or was not attributed to chamber music when we started. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of having some sort of mission behind your playing and then bringing that mission with joy to, and, and love to your audience is a thing I think we, it still isn't taught the way it should be at schools. Um, but I digress. Back to your point about uh, representation. Um, Valerie picked us for a reason. Mm-hmm. She picked us because we were people of color. I mean, she that was part of her reason right from the beginning. Now, 22 years into the ensemble, we have a person, it's not all people of color anymore, um, but we picked Mark Dover, our clarinetist, because he is an amazing uh, musician, one. Number two, we got along with him really well, um, <laughs> which is very important in chamber music. Mm-hmm. And number three, He's always had a, a, a mission of playing music by people of color himself. And he works mm. with, um, he plays jazz very well and, and he's an, a wonderful improviser. So he fit in really well right away. But we've gone um, out of our way wherever we are to play for and to look for people who are outside of the traditional concert um, audience and bring them into our our uh, concert experience and um, musicians I think <laughs> the young musicians we've come in contact with have heard that what you said so many times mm-hmm. um, through uh, we've met so many wind players who are people of color who said I've been seeing you since I was in fifth grade and you mean so much to oh, it's it's so amazing because I wish I had had that when I was mm-hmm. um, coming up. I, I was lucky enough to have parents who found me um, 
black flute. I was a flutist at first, uh, black flute teachers. And I had a black oboe teacher, actually. I was lucky enough for the first couple of years of um, high school. Her name is Ada Sanders. Um, and, you know, they, they went out of their way to find this for me. But so many other people don't have that kind of opportunity or didn't. But now there's a slew of us out there, a slew of people of color out there killing it on our instruments. And, and man, to, to think, if, again, to think if we even had a little part in that, it's just life is, life is good. Life is really good. So being such a um, high-profile woodwind quintet and being unapologetically Black, have you had any responses, not perhaps negative, but sometimes I will see conversations of quote unquote identity politics don't belong in classical music or um, calling attention to differences is more divisive. And that sentiment doesn't correspond with my personal sensibilities, but I wonder if that is something that you've had to kind of address or confront in your career doing the work that you do. Here's, here's the thing that might be, speak to this question a little bit. You asked how our mission has changed. Our bio has changed over the year, the bio that we put on our website. When we first started out, I think the first words on the bio were African-American wind quintet, Imani wins, blah, 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 change, blah, blah, blah. Um, and over time, we kind of moved the African-American and Latino part um, from the beginning of our bio to kind of in the middle of it because it didn't even need to be said. Mm -hmm. You just come out, you see us on stage and then we try our best to kill it on the instrument. And that's all you're really thinking about hopefully at the concert. And then, so eventually we struck those words from the bio altogether because it just didn't need to be said. I think uh, the music and our playing and our faces and our shoes all speak <laughs> for themselves. <laughs> it's there. It's there. And um, nobody has ever, I, we've never had the moment where people have tried to marginalize us. Um, I think they're ready. I think people are ready for musicians of color to come out. I don't think they're, they necessarily know how to support us well, but they're trying. And so I, I think, I think it's a good time for us to um, be out there for Imani Wins and these young uh, musicians of color who followed us um, to be out there just slaying on their instruments and, and bringing their own version of what it is to be a classical musician. I think we're all hungry for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know how you guys do it in those shoes. <laughs> <laughs> we don't play the whole concert standing up. That's the, I would love to ask about the kinds of things that Imani Wins did to make it your primary career, you know, the kinds of activities that helped your trajectory to make it the big thing that you do and that you can make a living off of it. And kind of as an offshoot to that question, what were the kinds of things uh, that you did to protect your relationships with each other, since you mentioned it is so important to enjoy being with the people that you're playing with and being a group that has existed for so long and so successfully and consistently. I'd love to know your strategies about that as well. Okay. Well, first of all, um, we didn't know when we first started out that we would make it to be a full-time win quintet we thought we were going to do it just a little bit. And then we started doing competitions and those competition, one of those competitions led to management. And so um, the career sort of built on its own Mm -hmm. and we got more and more gigs and we had to start turning down more and more things. So it it wasn't that (laughs) if, if we had our way, we would still be doing much more other stuff. But you say no to a few ensembles a few a few too many times and they don't call you anymore. So then you make sacrifices in order to make your dream come to fruition. And that's what each and every one of us did on an individual lesson uh, uh, basis. And now 
we have through those sacrifices, through that leap of faith of commitment to the group, we have come to this place of being a long-term, long-running, um, full-time ensemble. And I think that commitment to the group uh, is what has made it so that our relationships have um, lasted the way they have. Because we have all put in so many hours of rehearsal and outside of rehearsal meeting times talking about um, press kits or photos or the website or mission and, and education projects, let alone, you know, who buys the plane tickets and all that kind of stuff. There's so many hours of, of work and we all started out in such a good place. Uh, then Valerie picked such wonderful musicians who were also wonderful people that, that, that was amazing from the beginning that that kind of setup. uh, it, it led to a place where everyone kind of had to um, give it up to the group and give the best that they had to the ensemble. So as far as how we nowadays keep ourselves functioning in a healthy uh, way, I think it's always about letting, some, letting everyone have their voice. Mm-hmm. That was another thing that was super important to us right from the beginning is that everybody has to have some sort of say in the ensemble. Nobody is sitting around and sitting on their laurels. So even though Monica, our bassoonist, is the main business person of the ensemble, everybody makes decisions on repertoire. Everybody uh, decides whether or not we will have a publicist or um, how that publicist should work for us or what we're going to record next or all these very important decisions are run through the whole ensemble together. And if somebody disagrees on something, then which happens is happening now, actually, we're, we're not always in agreement on everything. Then we listen to that person and we change the way we we decide to work and we make it work so that everybody's satisfied. Mm -hmm. I wish orchestras were like that. Mm I have maybe kind of a fun question. If someone was looking over the oeuvre of pieces that Imani has. Oeuvre. (laughs) He went there. (laughs) We got big words on this podcast. of the pieces that Imani has um, commissioned or have been composed by members of the ensemble. If you could point our listeners to one favorite to check out. What is one Imani special in your guys' repertoire that they just have to become familiar with? Yeah, I, I always have to go with what's happening right now because that's kind of naturally my favorite because we're in it really hard. So right now, but I think even without that, I would still pick this, what I'm about to say as my favorite because it will, it'll become apparent to you. Jeff recently within the past few years wrote this piece called a passion for Bach and Coltrane. It's based on the idea of a passion, like um, St. Matthew passion Mm. of Bach, where it's a collection of, of pieces that he's written based on poetry by my father. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the music is all about the idea of what would happen if you combined um, the music of J.S. Bach with John Coltrane. And so it's, it has Imani Wins playing. It has a string quartet that plays with us. It's the Harlem String Quartet. And they're just a lovely group of people. And then we have a jazz trio that plays with us. And um, the orator who reads his poems is my 82-year-old dad. Oh, my God. Yeah, so we've been touring this program for a few years, and people see it, and they agree with my sentiment and the rest of the group's sentiment in that it is some of the best music they've ever heard, some, one of the best concerts they've ever been a part of. Because it is filled, not only is a music killer, Jeff did great music, not only is a, po- a poetry wonderful, my dad is an accomplished poet. Not only are the musicians fantastic, all that is true, but the vibe is so good. 
because the idea of the piece is so personal, so human. Uh, the poetry uh, is impartially about, like I said, a, a kind of meeting of Bach and Coltrane, the, my dad's favorite musicians. Um, but it's also like it just the, the concept of this whole piece from start to finish is just built been built on love. And so I think it's an amazing, amazing concert. And we've been touring it for a while. I hope we get to record it sometime soon. I was just going to ask if you're planning on recording it. We, we will. We will. The conditions have to be right, but we will record it. And there's a live recording on Jeff's YouTube that we will link to in the show notes so the listeners can check it out. Thank you. Thank you for that. There is a live recording of it. And yeah, it's just, it's just an amazing piece. So that's one of my favorite things of all time. Imani Wins has the Imani Wins Chamber Music Festival. And I was wondering um, why that was important for you all to start and what kinds of uh, interactions and mentoring and projects you get out of it. The Imani Wins Chamber Music Festival, if The Passion is my favorite piece, I think the, the festival is one of the best things we've ever done. Again, the idea of our former flutist, Valerie Coleman and founder, she had the idea that since we, a lot of the work that Imani Wins does is go to different universities around the country and work with the students on opening up their sound, opening up their hearts and minds to ideas outside of, again, traditional classical music. That's part of a large part of what we do nowadays. Um, and we, were, we would be there for a couple of days, maybe a week or two weeks at the most, and we felt frustrated that we weren't getting enough time with the young people that we were seeing there. So Valerie decided, let's put together a festival in New York um, so we can be at home and people can come to us. And we'll just get into it hard and, and play uh, different repertoire. In, in the standard wind quintet, just like our regular Imani Wins repertoire, we'll play stand, the students will play standard repertoire along with music by different composers from not just composers of color, but that's a large part of what it is to plus have the ensembles that are put together, um, work with student young composers, emerging composers. So we have composers come in and work with these ensembles and write something for them. And, and then we also have career seminars uh, where we talk about, what's going on in the world of music in general, you know, Alexander technique classes. Um, what else is thrown in there? Oh yeah. We also talk about how to speak from the stage. An incredibly important part of being a contemporary chamber musician is being able to speak about the music so that your audience feels connect, con connected to it. Um, all of these things, all within 10 days of, of coachings and master classes. We bring in killer guest artists to do master classes. So all this happens in 10 days in the summer in New York. And it's been just incredible. These musicians have been so inspiring and it's fun to see what's in our ninth year now. It's fun to see how they've gone off and started their own entrepreneurial projects, uh, either through teaching or performing or gone on to be in orchestras or whatever it is they've done. Oh, they're just so amazing. It's, it's, it's been the, the best thing we've ever done. Can I hear about a favorite memory of a past performance that you've had? Honestly, the, the, I, I, when you started that question, I was hoping you were going to say just best memory because the best memories are always around food. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that works. <laughs> 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 it's uh, because again we get along so well that uh after the performances we have we're yucking it up backstage and then and then that kind of yucking it up comes across on the stage too like that comradeship is is very important to our performance but uh, I'll, I'll do both how about that perfect so um two two food uh experiences come to mind one was when we were doing this um, residency in a state that I will not name um, just because I don't want to, what I'm about to say might sound a little negative, but it was, it, we were kind of sad because it was cold and dark 
in this residency and it, 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 we were just all kind of getting a little depressed. Um, and one of the school concerts that we did, one of the teachers invited us back to his house after the performance and he made this amazing meal with food he had caught right from his back, um, in the back of his house. And it was like super fresh and the, he had a wonderful little kid who we were hanging out with and it just brought the spirits of Imani Wins way back up and it was a major, major help because, and I feel like we were so grateful to this audience member who just was like, hey, you guys want to just come over and hang out? And so that, that was one great thing. And then another food thing was once we were in um, La Jolla, California, out, uh, in San Diego, and uh, the presenter there hooked us up with the amazing Wayne Shorter, who uh, had never, he, he, he had come to our concert, and then afterwards we got to hang out with him. And we were so excited. <laughs> Wayne Shorter is just the, he's the best living, he's the most well-known and most prolific and wonderful compose, living jazz composer right now. So um, to meet him and to hang out with him, and Herbie Hancock showed up. Was, oh my gosh. It was the most incredible thing at this gorgeous, you know, big house in La Jolla, which is super rich. So we were just hanging out with uh, Wayne. And then at that thing, he said, you know what? I want to write a piece for you guys. And we're like, what? <laughs> and maybe, maybe you can come on the road with us. And we're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so that was a good eating for eating moment. See, that food, it, it doesn't matter what you're doing, like gatherings around the table, it's always a moment to bring the love back. I think that's super important. Absolutely. Yeah. So out of that moment uh, with Wayne came one of my favorite performance moments, which was to, the first time we played with him in Montreal at the Montreal Jazz Festival. And that was... Oh, the, the rest of his quartet was so nice. And we, again, had many delightful meals together. And then we'd go out on stage and rock it hard. And it was, it was so, it was, a, it was one of the highlights of my whole career, of our whole career, was getting to play with Wayne. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, he's such a lovely guy. <laughs> so we all know that not all performances go as planned. And I'm hoping that you'll share with us maybe an embarrassing or a scary memory from a past performance. Well, I know what has been really challenging for me uh, personally is learning how to improvise on the mm. oboe. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not something I really did really before um, Imani wins. I had tried, dabbled a little bit and I had worked, I had friends who were jazz musicians, so they they had they wrote stuff for me when I was in school, but um, learning how to improvise is still incredibly stressful for me. <laughs> I'm uh, I I feel like it's the best learning experience I have at this point because I can kind of play Barbara Summer music. It's hard, but um, I I know that. But every time I get up there and their chord changes, I have to work really hard to make that happen. So I, I enjoy that kind of situation. Um, occasionally one of us will get sick and, uh, <laughs> and we we're such crazy people that they'll still go back on, out on stage. Like our former clarinetist, she had a stomach flu once. And so she'd play a piece and then go off and have to, you know, do what she had to do backstage. And then she'd come stagger back on and play oh, another piece. No. <laughs> <laughs> so... And uh, recently, I, I had a, a similar, similar situation. We were about to go out on stage, and my stomach was not behaving well, so we had to postpone the concert for 40 minutes. And then, But then I went back right on stage, and I played the heck out of that concert. <laughs> no way. <laughs> no way I was going to let it that, that be in, the end of it. No way. Like, I'm uh, green, but I'm here. <laughs> that's right. There's no way. <laughs> we came all that way and those people were waiting. There's no way I was not going to go out on that stage. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, so we've talked about Imani has garnered some amazing opportunities. You're 
very high profile ensemble. And with that comes really high expectations. And one thing we love to talk about on this podcast is um, performance anxiety or our relationship to how we feel inside when we're doing this vulnerable act of performing. So I would love if you could talk to us and our audience about your approach to performance anxiety, if you experience it, or if not, maybe some advice you would have for those of us who do. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I feel your pain. <laughs> It's, I think everybody has at least some of that um, happen in their lives. And the way I've combated it personally is, um, well, it's a couple of different ways. One is when I'm feeling nervous, um, I like to put myself, kind of channel the composer that I'm playing and make it more about her or his vision of what the music should be like. And, and imagine what they would say to me. I kind of sometimes even imagine, imagine them on stage to me, kind of talking to me, um, saying, wow, this piece, I really, I really had, this is a part, this is a money moment right here at this spot that I really want you to express well. And, or I was thinking about, you know, my mom when I wrote this piece, or, you know, I give some sort of story to the piece and I concentrate on that story rather than um, the notes themselves. So that gives me kind of a roadmap of emotional content that I can bring to the music that has nothing to do with my fingers or my breath. Because I think concentrating too much on your fingers and your breath sometimes gets you messed up. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. Um, Another thing is uh, I, I have developed the skill of communicating with my ensemble, through Imani Wins, I've developed the skill of communicating with my uh, bandmates. Um, So whether it's just me playing a solo piece with piano or um, even now when I'm playing solo by myself, my main idea is to communicate as opposed to perform. So that story that I've built up, um, I'm telling that story whilst playing the oboe. I said whilst, I guess I did. Um, <laughs> I <dug it. laughs> so I tell that story and then again it gets me out of the ego the mm-hmm. ego and um and the worry about the breath is 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 what or the shortness of breath is what really gets to me so I communicate and I radiate warmth and love when I play that's something I'm very proud of having worked on and developed so that and being prepared as much as possible makes me feel, it gets me through when I'm nervous, when I'm performing. Um, I'm actually a relatively shy person by nature. Um, I really like to be at home hanging out with my family and um, a lot of being in this ensemble and being who, who we've become means you have to be out there with lots of people all the time. And so I just, I, it's not just a performance anxiety. It's, it's like communication or like uh, personality anxiety, just mm. re- uh, person-to-person communication anxiety. So um, again, coming with love and just radiating warmth and happiness um, has helped me get through those situations better. Because if you come with good energy and good vibes, then most likely the audience or the people you're talking to will come to you, they'll, they'll bring it back to you. And then it's a nice loop of positivity that helps you get through that nervousness as well. That's a beautiful point. Do you have any strategies for balancing your career with your life outside of the oboe? And has that been really difficult to maintain? Or is it something that you have really strict boundaries about? I, don't, I, I couldn't be a chamber musician and have strict boundaries because <laughs> unfortunately I, it's not even the, um, the staidness of an orchestra. Like my, I'm out sometimes I'm out of my house a lot. Um, I'm out of this, of the uh, town in New Jersey. I live a lot. And so my husband and daughter are here without me and that really hurts. Sometimes it hurts them in some ways and it hurts me. Uh, to be away from them. So uh, I have to 
uh, I have to be flexible with them and I have to be flexible with uh, Imani wins in my career at the same time. And they have to be flexible with me too. I'm lucky enough that uh, my mother-in-law lives with us for now. So that helps with watching my nine-year-old daughter um, through time. And I think that through the rest of the ensemble has a similar kind of help from their family members. Monica Arbasunist, her mother comes and watches her son when we're in, out of town and her sister lives uh, a block away from her. So uh, they can both help with childcare. Um, Mark, our clarinetist, his, his in-laws moved from California to be in uh, Queens, just a short car ride away, away so they could help with his infant daughter. So um, we have a lot of family help. And then we have to, again, we just have to make sacrifices for this kind of lifestyle. And it's not for everyone. Lots of people don't want to have this kind of lifestyle. So I, I, it's, I, and I understand it, but working with the kids that we've gotten to work with um, from the little kids to the college students and the audiences that we've, whose, whose hearts and minds we've been able to touch and, and, and influence, it's, it makes it worth it for me. And I'm incredibly grateful to a flexible, have a flexible partner who has been there for me um, and to flexible musician mates who understand when uh, a few years ago, here's another story. I should put a period in this, by the way, I've, I've been talking about it. <laughs> here's, here's a period. I'm going to start another story now. Here it goes. <laughs> when we were about, oh, 15, 16 years in, uh, we were having a business meeting as we tend to do. And we checked in with each other about how we were feeling about how the ensemble was going. At that point, my daughter was about three and we were touring maybe as clo close to 150, 200 days out of the year, we were on the road. And my daughter was coming with me and my husband was really frustrated to have her out of the house. And it was super hard for me. And I said to the group, guys, we have to tour less because I, I just can't do it. I, I'm out of my mind. This is crazy. And um, the group was very flexible and they said, okay, let's see how we can work less. And so we talked that through and we slowed down a little bit after that. Soon after that, uh, the, a couple of other members had kids too. So we, it, it was time to slow down anyway, but you know, the career had to be, be flexible for us. Mm -hmm. it, it's, that's one of the fortunate things. We're a chamber music group, so we can decide how much or how little we want to work. And there are ramifications to working less. You make less. Mm -hmm. But uh, at some point, you have to make decisions to, you know, have a life outside of the ensemble. Or not. You know, mm -hmm. some people can tour a lot. But uh, we've slowed down a little bit, but we've built up the festival and other things to supplement our careers so that uh, we can continue to be a full-time ensemble. We always close with the question, what advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? First of all, I would say you have to take classes outside of just the traditional music classes where you learn about being a citizen of this world that we live in right now. Mm. Super important to know where, what, where your place is in this world and what you think about you, what your place is in this world. I would say it's very important to take a writing class where it's writing intensive because it's good to know how to use your words well. Uh, that's been a skill that has served me very well. Um, have a sharp knife, oboists. <laughs> <laughs> That's number one. If, if your reads aren't going well, it's probably your knife. Mm -hmm. I was really grateful that I took some singing classes that really helped me um, learn how to control my breath. If that's not possible for you when players come to the Imani Wins Chamber Music Festival and we'll talk about your support and we'll get you set up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Be good to the people you are working with and you're in school with because those are the people who will help you once you get out of school. 
be good to your teachers, even your theory teachers and music history teachers, if you think you're going to be a performance person, because they are incredibly, I can't tell you how many times my theory and history teachers have been helpful to me, even in our career today. So be good to all of your teachers. If you're in school, treat your security guards with respect because at times you're going to want to stay late to practice. And those are the people who are going to, who are going to really help you out. I still talk to the security guards at my um, grad school and at Juilliard who were so helpful to us, Imani wins when we were first starting out because we would sneak into the building and, and practice and they would let us in because we were friends. Um, practice hard. Uh, here's a really important one. Uh, keep people around you who who treat you with respect and who help you come along but get and get rid of the people who are holding you back that could be musically or that could be relationship wise you might find your you wake up and you find yourself midway through your schooling and all of a sudden you you've been with the wrong boyfriend that whole time mm-hmm. and that has led to problems in your life so make sure you have good people around you at all times. You surround yourself with people who make you better. Thank you so much, Toy. And it's been such a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on Double Read Dish. It's been my pleasure. We hope you loved that interview as much as we did. You can find us on all of the social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can follow us on SoundCloud, YouTube, and find us where you prefer to listen to your podcast. On our next episode, we have an interview with Kim Laskowski, Associate Principal Bassoon in the New York Philharmonic. And yes, I did ask her if she knows any of the New York housewives, because why wouldn't I? Galit. Time to end this nerd parade. Jackie, go make grease.